Well, you know, I think the reason why, because her song, she's snapping one, two, so she's counting the rules as she goes. <laughs> That's maybe what the song is about. Oh, so where are you refers to... Where are you in the list of rules Totally. that I need to catch you up on? <laughs> Finally, it makes some fucking sense. <laughs> Hello, it's Three Queers and a Song Contest. I'm Louisa. I'm Gar. And I'm Sunny. And we are back with another episode tackling Eurovision from three international perspectives. Welcome. And... This is a bit of a bonus episode, because even though we are a tiny baby pod, we actually have had some listener questions, which is really exciting. In particular, our non-European listeners are confused about what the fuck we're talking about. Um, Mm. And so we wanted to have an episode where we just kind of address the burning question of what on earth is Eurovision? Um, How the hell does it work? And why do we care? Eurovision 101. Yeah, a little intro. The dummies. If you already crazy familiar with Eurovision. Hey, listen anyway, because frankly, the numbers would be good for us. Um, (laughs) But for anyone who's maybe like a finals only gal or like an American that doesn't like necessarily understand what what on earth we're talking about. We're here to give you a quick breakdown, a quick understanding of what happens, why it exists. And yeah, outside of that, like one magical night, what on earth's going on with Eurovision? Um, And... Because this is a little bonus episode, we're not doing news. We will be back soon with our many opinions on the song selections. Here we go! Uh, it's so soon. I'm so excited. Episodes, so we're not gonna we're not gonna touch on like the ones out coming out right now. So let's kick off. Sunny, can you tell us just start at the beginning? How the hell does this competition work? So once upon a time, <laughs> I mean, what is it? It's an international song competition that occurs every May. Um. Gay Christmas, as some people call it. Yes. yes. Um, organized by the European Broadcasting Union, or the EBU, which is an association of public service broadcasters. So the way it works is each participating country submits an one original song each year to be performed live during the competition. Now, when I say original song, the music and lyrics cannot be released or be performed in public prior to September 1st the previous year. Okay. Makes September 1st very exciting because it means the songs particularly, oh, there was a big kerfuffle last year um, because ABBA released a song on oh, like, this, yes. they released their new album on like the 2nd of September and everyone was convinced they might be Ooh, yes. submitting it to Eurovision. They did not, obviously, mm-hmm. but, Missed opportunity. you know, it's rife for speculation. Yes. So that's exciting. So because of the volume of competitors, there are two semifinals where the public vote for their favourites. Those that make it through go to the grand final and are joined by the big five, which Mm -hmm. we'll explain in a little bit, and the host country who automatically qualify. The grand final is voted on by the public and juries from each participating country. And we'll get into the voting in a little bit as well. Now, in terms of song entries, it's up to each participating broadcaster to determine how they choose the song and artist to enter. Most countries have these well-established selection events that happen um, usually in the first few months of the year. Like right now. Pretty much like Melody Festivalen in Sweden, San Remo Festival in Italy, big nationally televised events. So like where... internal mini competitions before Eurovision. Yeah, they're big deals. For some countries, like yeah, particularly Melfest is like a massive deal yeah. Yeah. in Sweden. Yeah, yeah. it's like you, it's, it's not just a like I would, I mean 
I was going to say it's like bigger than an X factor, but I don't know. I'm not in those countries. I, I mean, some of them actually use the voice as their selection process. I think uh, Georgia does. Um, but others are selected internally by media and industry execs, something that the UK has done in recent years. Bang, close doors. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, a whole, like, secret society, it's very... Um, Cloak and daggers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and Australia is doing that this year, actually. So now let's get into details on voting. Um, it is rather complex, so bear with us. This is where so, the drama starts, the good drama. Yeah, and over the years, like, the EBU has changed the voting rules dozens of times, so we'll only go through those that apply from this year. So as of 2023, the public fully determines which acts go through from the semi-finals into the grand final through a televoting system. Voting lines for each show are opened only after all songs have been performed. Which I love because then there's drama around like, ooh, are you first in the lineup or last in the lineup? And then it's like, oh, maybe you're at a disadvantage because you're early on. The public forgets you mm. or whatever. Yeah, first is a curse. It is, yeah. always. Now, each country awards points to their top 10, with the first place getting 12 points, the second place getting 10 points, and then the remaining eight places getting eight points down to one point. And you cannot vote for your own country. But you can vote for, like, your neighbours, and that's where you oh, get we'll into, like, political drama. All right. Um, now, the same public voting happens for the final. However, then this is combined with the jury vote from each country in the same ascending format. Um, the jury being a selection of five musical industry professionals from each country. Um, so they're the dark, shadowy figures kind of that's, lurking behind. That can get political as well. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, the release of the results on grand final night is... Oh, it's a thrill. Oh, my God. It's one of the... Oh, it's... The most intense, It's the cause of my heart attack when I eventually have one. So, yeah, like, the voting is just, like, a combo of... You've got jury vote and public vote. They get meshed together for the final scores, but they get delivered separately, which is a thrill a minute um, hour of everyone's lives. Yeah. It's a a long-winded reveal, but it's, it's wonderful. The mo- some of the most intense television of the year. I love it. Um, so first, we reveal the jury voting results. And the way we do this is we cross live to a representative from each country. This is one of my favourite bits because, yeah, warning, if you're going to watch it for the first time this year or anything, like the, the representatives from each country really milk giving the results in a way that sometimes is painful, sometimes it's hilarious. But yeah, everyone's really after those like five minutes of fame. It's so it can get long winded. It's always uncomfortable. There's also it's often, also a delay. Yes, there's always a delay. Yeah. I love it. So it's like, oh gosh, are they listening? Are we still and they interacting? Always, I like loads of them try and make like a little gag about the show, but when you've got like that like few seconds delay and so then the hosts laugh like delayed as well. It's all it's it's I don't I can't imagine that there's any other way to do it, but it's such a dysfunctional way of doing it. It's also like a law of diminishing returns because everyone tries to make like the same gag and yep. then like the thirty fifth one, you're like, oh my gosh, we've heard this a hundred. But sometimes times. it goes back around and then becomes great. Again. Yes, so absolutely. it's like it's good. It's just it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, there's always technical issues with yep. some country as well. I They've all it. got like those green screens that show them like stood in like the middle of their biggest city or whatever. Yeah, they're like, I said, like they the look studio. like local weathermen on like bad television channels. It's great. It's fantastic. Some of them dress up. Some of them are like jeans and a t-shirt. Yeah. It's, Most it's, of them are drunk. Mo- yeah. Yeah. Oh, 100%. It's wonderful. So their top 10 are revealed on the screen. This is by country. 
uh, with the big announcement of who they gave their 12 points to. And this repeats country by country with a live scoreboard um, until all the countries have given all of their jury votes. And so that takes like a while. And so I get that some people maybe feel like it drags on a little, but it's so intense. Yeah, I think it depends, right? Because if you're doing like a Eurovision party and you're just watching it, that part can drag on a little. If you are milling around and you're sort of waiting for the result to go to to end the and show. But if American... you're really invested in it, mm. it's a very tense time. A few of our American friends have actually commented that this is the part that they switch off for. Yeah. It's like, no, this is the most interesting part. Um, so after that's done, we then turn to the public televotes. And for this, we go from the lowest ranked jury song and reveal how many additional points they got from the public vote. All of the orders change. Anything yes. can happen. It's an absolute roller coaster of emotion. And this yeah, is because why... we continue one by one up the scoreboard until we reach the top. And you may not know who won right until the yeah, last so, moment. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this basically happened last year, right? Of like when revealing the public votes, the UK was sitting at first for ages because Ukraine was going to be one of the last ones to have the public vote points revealed. And we all knew watching it that the public was going to vote overwhelmingly for Ukraine and that was probably going to change everything. But it did, it changed right at the last minute. Yeah. And you can, yeah, you can have the top sort of three or four countries can completely change in the last like five minutes of the show. Also, God bless the advent of technology because it's so much, generally, so much smoother with a computer, with a televised screen. In the past, when it's been a manual scoreboard especially, it can get really chaotic. And people like miss here, and then like the person who's flipping the numbers gets it wrong, or does the wrong country, and then someone has to come on stage. It's Also, the whole new system, so it used to be that all of the scores were like compiled and revealed at once, which actually was quite long-winded and long, boring, because yeah. you didn't, because you kind of knew who was winning halfway through. Yeah. And they used this to system, announce how many points each they, each country gave. Oh yeah, they used to do the whole, the whole readout. The so it has yeah. been streamlined. This, yeah, it's been streamlined, it's been made more dramatic it's really it's yeah i think the scoring is is really fun now i think well, yeah when we were sitting at that table watching the finals in turin it was just like oh god anything anything could happen but yeah essentially anything can change you should you should stick around for the scoring if you're watching but then i guess the question is why do we have this competition? <laughs> philosophically, if what, we, what are you, Eurovision? Yeah, if we're going to start with the complicated scoring rules, I'm going to step back a minute to be why it exists anyway. So I think, picture if you will, it's 1950. Will. We're in Europe. The Second World War has ended. Europe as a continent is like, we should really try and unite a bit more, bring us together, have open channels of communication in a way that's going to help us not have wars anymore. So they form the EBU. And the EBU is the European Broadcasting Union. As Sunny mentioned, it's a kind of... Public service broadcast. A public service broadcast. Yeah, bro broadcasters all kind of united together. So they basically started in 1950. So the EBU would like broadcast like big public events, so like coronations and things they would share like across all of the public broadcasters. Um, and they are not only European countries. We'll come back to this, but there's a, the misleading thing about Eurovision is the idea that we do actually have quite a lot of non-European countries yeah. in there. Mm -hmm. So six years after this, the EBU is going really well. They're broadcasting all these big events. And someone in 1955 is like, 
you know what we should do? We should try this like music competition. That would be a really nice way to bring everyone together and improve international cooperation and relationships and world peace. Um, and so they tried it out for the first time in 1956. And it was like seven countries with two songs each. Switzerland won after hosting for the first time. And voting was all on like in secret. And they just kind of revealed the winner. Right. So that was the first ever Eurovision, 1956 seven countries and one cameraman if we um listen to Mans and Petra tell us <laughs> if you need a potted history of this by the way go to YouTube search Mans and Petra opening review you'll just get a oh. handy little song number that will tell you basically the whole history I only listen to history in song format it's the only way I remember yeah. it um honestly Hamilton's the only reason I know anything about American independence <laughs> um so yes, that's when it started. And as I probably have mentioned on this podcast before, it started basically with the pure intentions of just improving international cooperation, building a Europe that wouldn't go to war anymore. And and just, yeah, uniting us in kind of a celebration of music and culture and sharing these things. And it's it's pure and it's beautiful. Uh-oh, she's going to again. <laughs> I, I, see, I see the waterworks. Kumbaya. <laughs> so 66 contests have been held since then, as of 2022, which actually makes it also the longest running annual international televised mm. music competition. So that's a big deal. It's been running a while and that's its roots. So now we get into, I guess, the performance rules. Um, so each song entered into the Eurovision cannot be more than three minutes in length. And that helps keep the uh, the live shows running quick and snappy. Um, the song can be in any language, but the lead vocals of the song must be sung live. Um, None of this Ashley Simpson lip syncing situation. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, but interestingly, all instrumentation must be pre-recorded on a backing track. So whenever you see it any... It used to be the case in Correct. Venice. So, yeah, this is an important evolution because they mm. used to have an orchestra and the rules around what had to be live have really evolved. The conductor role used to be a big announced... Um, like, they'd announce the, the artist, but then also the conductor yeah. of the orchestra. Yeah, and it's like essentially something that I think has evolved and maybe, Sonny, you're going to correct me, but of both modernization and also just the scale of the competition we've now got so many performers in it when you've only got seven people performing sure they can each like have an orchestra um but when you've got 40 something yeah yeah (laughs) numbers math when you've got more than that as has like it changes every year it changes every year you have to start downsizing who's on stage so like the idea of having the music the music be pre-recorded is like a relatively recent um, occurrence and so so what that means is for for first time viewers um whenever you see bands playing instruments on stage they are it's completely faking it and i think what's great is that sometimes musicians make a feature of miming along so they make it seem like hey i'm playing i'm really part of this musically and some do something a little more tongue-in-cheek and are kind of clearly obviously not playing and make that a joke now you can also have backing vocals uh on the pre-recorded track but no lead vocals can be recorded. I find this very controversial. This can be a whole separate episode. I think, yeah, this is this is a subject for debate, right? Because mm-hmm. some people will object to the idea that you can have any pre-recorded vocals at yep. all and everyone should be on stage. It does... I mean, God, what you what? What are your what's your? Take I mean, on? I'll withhold my fervor uh, for a full other episode. But generally, I just think it's a song competition. It should everything should be sung live, and if you can't. 
if you can't uh, stand up to the pressure and you can't perform it, well, that's that's that. I agree. Yeah, I think I would I would agree. I think it's interesting what you get because of being able to have pre-recorded backing vocals like Spain last year. You could not have had that performance and that dance without having pre-recorded backing vocals. And if you isolate her vocals, I don't think they're that great, but we can talk but, about that. But this is time. it. I mean, that's a tactical thing, right? It's like whether or not you go all out on performance right. costumes and trying to wow people rather than really focusing on the song. Because a lot of voters are just voting on the night and you just got to grab their attention. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's a controversial, controversial move. And I think that if they ever said you could pre-record the main vocals, there would be riots. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, now, only six people are allowed on the stage per entry. Um, and unfortunately, the rules do explicitly state that no animals are allowed on stage. Although we've seen people dressed as wolves, horses, gorillas. And a guy in a hamster years. wheel, which is yes. animalistic in some ways. True. Um, we should say that the artist does not necessarily need to be from the country they're representing. The only official rule is that an individual cannot compete for more than one country in a given year. I would uh, love for just like one artist to be kind of bopping around from. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, we've seen artists perform for different countries over the years, um, and international acts like Celine Dion in 1988, and the likes of Flo Rida, who featured on a song in 2021 for San Marino. That was an abomination. Um, <laughs> it was though, not it was, worth it. <laughs> no, I just re-listened to it and I was like, oh, this this is cringy. This is I really know. cringy. Though generally speaking, the artist usually comes from or has some connection to the country that they're representing. Um, as we learned in episode one, entrants need to be 16 years or older on the day of the final to compete. Now... So they can do the whole competition, they can do the whole run-up, it's 15, it's their birthdays that week. That would be a great way correct. to do it. Correct. Now, here's something interesting. Um, while I was researching this episode, I found an official BBC website for Liverpool 2023 which stated that the minimum age was 18 and that all vocals must be performed live. Now, unfortunately, I think the mistake, this was a mistake by the BBC. You don't think the EBO are changing the rules up on us again? No, <laughs> but I wish we could return to those, uh, like, no pre-recorded backing vocals. I mean, that would Maybe be amazing. Maybe one day. Uh, I want to see that. Uh, so the BBC has the wrong... Has a few... Yeah, it's, it's on their page for um, registering uh, an act uh, with... Like with rules against it. Now, the other thing is that I wanted to show you guys in the room uh, the official Eurovision website for the rules of the contest has a lovely image of our oh, beloved Rosalind <laughs> with her wall of white. Uh, toilet, toilet paper. paper sticky notes. Well, you know, I think the reason why, because her song, she's snapping one, two, so she's counting the rules as she goes. <laughs> That's maybe what the song is about. Oh, so where are you refers to where are you in the list of rules totally. that I need to catch you up on. <laughs> Finally, it makes some fucking sense. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so... I would say the next thing is hosting, both in terms of which country is doing it and in terms of the people on stage. For countries, it's usually the winner of the previous year's contest hosts the following year. Now, that's kind of a badge of honor, right? Like, oh, wow, we won, so we get to the host the next year. So and we get to go into financial debt because it's yeah, an expensive thing to It's a wildly expensive thing to host, so right. it's not always a blessing. Yeah, and so the few times, there have been, I think, six or seven times that hosts 
uh, have declined or, or the, the would-be hosts have declined. Usually it's been around, uh, they have you know, won the contest a couple of years in a row. Um, so they don't want to, they're a smaller federation. Um, the other is just if it's a small company, uh, a small company, a small country. So like Monaco, uh, declined one year and so forth. Um, the only other really interesting one was 1970. And I would love this to be a separate episode because there was a four way winner that year. And I would love to see, do a discussion about that. Yeah, well, stay tuned for a 1970 deep dive. Excellent. Um, okay, and then individual hosts. There are usually a few people on stage at the same time. Um, it is primarily spoken in, in English, um, but you generally have uh, a spread of linguistic capabilities. What do you know? What do you normally see on stage? You normally. Like English and French will tend to be like the most used languages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then there will be some stuff that's in the language of the country that's hosting. Yeah. So it will depend a little bit how that varies, how much they really use that. Um, which also like links back to the rules. So the rules have shifted about what languages people can sing in as well. With English becoming like massively prevalent in being used for songs because it's the most common language throughout yeah. the, the countries that compete. And so it becomes the most relatable because um, it can be quite, it's it's varied how tricky it is to win in a language that isn't familiar to a lot of people. And so the hosts sometimes, usually they're tangentially or directly involved in music, right? Sometimes they're just sort of TV presenters from said country, um, but usually they have some kind of musical capability or they are musicians um, or they're in musical theater. Or previous contestants. Or previous sometimes contestants. Sometimes previous contestants, yeah. And so that is uh, something that I think we've seen with varying degrees of success. Um, Shout out to Mons and Petra. Oh, yeah, exactly. We can't talk hosting without 2016 Sweden hosting. Mons and Petra like absolutely smashed, smashed. it. So they're, they, they're the gold standard in yeah. my book. There have been low points. 91, um, Toto was a total disaster. There's a really great montage on YouTube of him especially just mangling the results where he's like mishearing things and calling the wrong country. There was one moment where he announced who won 12 points and it was, I think it was France. And he says, France. And then two seconds later, he's like, Spain. And it's like, you just said the right thing. And then you say the wrong thing two <laughs> seconds after it. It's Amazing. fantastic. And you can see everyone around him just kind of like rolling their eyes. On to like who participates what are the politics? I think like one of the biggest discussions around Eurovision is like, oh, it's political voting. There's a lot there's a lot going on there. Obviously, it's a big international competition. Countries have got a lot of different relationships. So that does tend to play out in the competition. In short, in terms of who participates. So you are eligible to enter if you're part of the European Broadcasting Area, which is essentially the area where countries... Um, buy in their national broadcaster buys into the ebu and as you have probably noticed if you've watched any that doesn't actually always include just european countries so israel cyprus and morocco are all part of the european broadcasting area not european countries and then of course we've got australia who's our biggest notable exception that's actually not part of the european broadcasting area but we're invited to join God knows why at this point. Because um, we love Eurovision <laughs> no, so much. They were invited to join by like a special committee because of their like love and participation. There's a whole, we're not going to get too deep into why the hell they're there, but essentially they are the one exception that isn't part of the European Broadcasting And area. we should state that if Australia does win, we are not allowed to host. Yes, it has to be hosted within 
the yeah. official area. They're just there for the fun times and the crack, you know? Exactly. I really enjoy, there's a sort of a delightfulness in watching Sonny feel like he has to defend the honor of his country and why they're relevant. And, <laughs> and why also, they though, play. what I will say is I am a massive fan of Australia being part of it. I think if, you know, I think if we invite people to join just for pure love of Eurovision, that's mm-hmm. really in line with... It's in line with the ethos. And yeah. we're changing things a little bit this year with rules in terms of anyone can vote from any country, non-participating country. So there will be more global participation. There will be more, some of that. Indeed. So 44 countries are allowed to enter each year in order to compete for a place in the final. There are five countries who always get a place in the final, the, the big five. big five. Now, these big five always get a place in the final because basically they make the biggest financial contributions to the EBU. So those countries are uh, France, Germany, Italy, Spain... And, of course, the UK. Hey. Uh, so, yeah, we basically, we always get a place. And there's some conversations to be had about whether or not that means we just do not try anymore. You could kind of call them like the Nepo babies. We could we could call us, yeah, basically. But what I will say is that the big five do normally bring it. I think the UK less yeah. than the others. Mm-hmm. But it's not, you know, we don't just rock up to the final without... We're, you know, with a mediocre song because we're not interested in winning. We're there to win the final. We but just don't have to try to get there. I think the other thing that's important is that the Big Five hasn't always been around. It's only been since like the, the I think 90s, 1999, right? I think. Yeah. So yeah. it's not always it's been It's not always been there. Um, so yeah, that's just important context for who's in there. So then let's talk politics yeah, briefly. Yeah, let's. There is... There's a, there's a mix of takes on this. There's controversy and concerns, basically, that the voting and participation is a bit too influenced by politics and inter-country relationships outside of the competition. Some of this, I think, is, like, relatively self-referential and lighthearted. So, you know, neighbours will give each other points. Like, the Scandinavians will all vote for each other. Cyprus and Greece will always vote for each other. France and Belgium always give each other points. And the UK and Ireland always give each other points. You know, neighbours will... Mm-hmm give each Scratch other, each other backs. Now, how you interpret that, I think is varied. Like there's been studies, like we know for a fact that that is a pattern. There's consistency in like the voting blocks that tend to share points. <laughs> it could be that that's political relationships and people voting on the basis of those. It could be just that culture and tastes tend to vary across regions. And so we're more likely to like the songs that our neighbors produce than we are somewhere far away. My personal take is that shared cultures and tastes impact voting. Because we're talking about public vote. The public, I believe, are less influenced by kind of whether or not we really need that country on our side for economic reasons. I mean, this also kind of falls in line with your uh, thoughts around purity in Eurovision. (laughs) Yeah, okay, this is true. Obviously, I am very idealistic about Eurovision (laughs) and I don't believe there could ever be any corruption. (laughs) So it's obviously just because... They like we have just similar cultural tastes. They yeah. vary. Like yeah, of course the Baltic states are all going to be into each other's like culture and music. There are also going to be just more of the population in uh, in that country. So yeah, there's going to be more Greek people in Cyprus and vice versa. So. For sure. Um, and so yeah, for that I I I think it's that. I think it's more driven by taste. But there's an open debate. We'll never truly know. Now. Some of the politics is a little bit more delicate and pointed. So that has included censorship of broadcasts, overt political messaging in songs, and seeing, obviously, most recently as well, like real-world conflicts play out. We've seen real-world conflicts play out in the past. Ukraine-Russia is obviously a a real notable one at the moment. I'm not going to get into the weeds on this because there's a lot of nuance and there's not enough experts in this room to talk about geopolitical things in any (laughs) kind of good way. But obviously notable... A few notable things on that are Ukraine's entry in 2016 
um, which was called 1944. It referenced Crimea. The Russians, who are still part of the competition at that point, thought it was a bit of a pointed dig at their annexation of Crimea mm. and took exception to it. And there was a bit of a kerfuffle about that. Um, obviously, Russia has since been removed from the competition for invading Ukraine, um, which is a very anti-Eurovision thing to do. Um, and then Israel's inclusion is also something of kind of long-standing tensions. There are eligible Arab states who refuse to participate because of your um, because of Israel's um, place in the competition. And there's also situations of um, like Israel's performances being censored, or I think when um, Netta won, like some Arab states like just cut the broadcast yeah. of it. So there's obviously a lot of competing views on whether or not Israel should be barred in a similar way to Russia's been barred due to kind of, you know, occupational hazards. Um, but yeah, actually, you... in for the Israel show, um, Iceland actually got fined for pulling out a Palestinian flag during the live yes. show. And even Madonna, who was the guest performer that mm-hmm. year, I don't know if you remember yeah. her performance. Um, it was questionable. It was, it was I questionable. I try not to. Um, <laughs> two of her dancers had... Palestine and Israeli flags on their costumes, which the EBU did not know about. Uh, yeah, so the EBU tries to keep the kind of overt political messages in the competition fairly locked down, but obviously there's there are just global politics yeah. at play. And so you do see some of that break out, particularly... Uh, Ukraine have actually a decent history of doing quite political songs. There's there's often kind of references in there. Um, Serbia as well has done some really like political songs it's <laughs> not another word for that um you could talk politics in eurovision for many hours yeah. so i think that's probably as much as we want to touch on it right now but just to note there's some there's some stuff to keep an eye on if you're watching for the first time that is more depth to it than than just the music and so when you are watching it if you're unfamiliar there are perhaps categories of songs that begin to emerge. Um, some of the ways that they're categorized perhaps are done in a um, condescending way, right? So I'm going to, I think, identify what I see as sort of four um, types, genres, styles of songs that I see. Uh, maybe it's a little reductive to, to do this, but um, okay. So type number one, the ballad, Yeah. right? A quintessential, um, a quintessential, necessary type. Absolutely. Um, why it gets disparaged, you know, it can be kind of weepy, slow, lethargic. If you get a bunch of ballads in a row, it can maybe bring the mood down a little bit. You know, schmaltzy lyrics. But why do I love a ballad? Because I, as I've said before, respond intensely to ballads in Eurovision and in all parts of my life. Um, they generally have key changes. Mm. That is the thing. If you want key changes, that's that's your best. That's your best bet. Yeah. There's also the sub-genre of uh, sad boy ballads. Oh, my oh. God. So there ha- Yeah, there's always so many sad boy ballads. Yeah. yeah. The, John's Tears, the Australian, not the same. Eurovision, uh, I think, is one of the Bush. prime prime platforms for male emotions mm. that we have in pop culture. <laughs> it's the only place these boys are feeling anything. That's right. And it's all coming out through dramatic hey, songs. Hey, they are welcome. Oh, please. I love a sad boy song. Yeah. Um, and ballads also generally have big soaring choruses, which is the other hallmark for me of a good song. Um, 
if we are to identify perhaps one quintessential ballad, I would like to point people to 2014, Conchidor's win with Rise Like a Phoenix. Oh, yeah, I think that's... If you have to watch one ballad, that's yes. my that's my um, declaration. I, I, I support that. If we are going to give you like four, a song for each genre. I am, yeah. I think, yeah, Rise Like a Phoenix is the one to go for. Classic. Category yeah. number two, Europop. Right, so songs that are upbeat, dance, kind of trance, history of disco, um, bops, right? Um, they have good hooks, generally great performances, but maybe kind of shallow lyrics, maybe more important on the performance as opposed to the song and the performance itself. Yeah, because I guess like another important aspect to Eurovision is the lyric nonsense so there's the lyric nonsense that we can all feel angered about on a regular basis your snaps and mm -hmm. then there's the lyric nonsense which is just like there's fun nonsensical lyrics that make a more of an appearance in the euro pop um like genre where right. it's just like it doesn't need to make that much sense it can be just like a roughly translated something it's you're there for the vibes not for the the narrative yeah and i think that's that's quite key actually as well because often uh, artists are singing in English, not their first language. Yeah. Some of them are just badly translated. Yeah. Quintessential. I'm going to go with 2012, Euphoria. Ugh. Does that count as Europop? Here's me being an American. I mean, I think it does. I think okay, it so I, I have a hesitation as to whether or not Euphoria is Europop. I think Euphoria is one of one of our best Eurovision winners ever. Mm -hmm. It's an app. It's incredible. I don't know if I would count it as Europop because mm. I feel like it's got... I feel like it's too soaring for Europop. Okay. But genres are murky. Yep, absolutely. I think I'm happy I'm happy with it as why like put, a quintessential listen. Why why put them in boxes? You know? <laughs> yeah, you know? Okay, so category number three, folk music. Or the uh encounter with um perhaps traditional folk instruments. Um it could be with lyrics, uh, especially in, you know, that particular um that particular language but often it is the kind of uh, instruments that are brought to the stage um there could be unfamiliar singing styles or things you know instruments you haven't seen before um what are our thoughts on this as a kind of area i love it i think where you've got like really traditional musical styles coming into your vision and countries being like this is like some heritage shit sometimes that's a play for votes more than it is you know a particularly sincere thing but I think that's one of like the wonderful things about the competition is you've got a lot of different cultures influencing the musical styles that come in. You get to like hear music that you just doesn't really make it into the mainstream in your country. So there are styles of music that I've enjoyed that I just never would have come across without the competition. I think this is the the, the kind of traditional slash folk box yeah. of um yeah of submissions is is where I find most of those. And this is why I brought this up as a question because I knew you would head towards the kind of like <laughs> purity of oh my god I get to see I get to see so much diversity. Look, look, the world <laughs> is a nightmare, and it's hard to find things to just believe in. Yep. This is this is what I've got. This um, is what I can be sincere about. And so again, this is very sincere. I think if people are going to watch one performance with folk music, 1980 Norway, um, it's a song that includes uh, the Sami language. Um, it is fantastic and people should go check it out. Yes, and so that's also another point about how many languages, there's a lot of traditional mm -hmm. or like ancient languages that have been used. Again, 
Shout out to Mons and Petra's opening review at the semi-final 2016 for a good a good list of all the languages that have been used. Oh, um, yeah, they yeah. did so bloody well with they that. They did a good job. Um, there's also, yeah, there's a few made-up languages that rock up occasionally as well. Yeah, so, I think um, Bruss, uh, uh, Belgium once sang a song in a completely made-up language, even though they've got four official languages yes, in Belgium. Yes, so and this is like some of the language rules have fluctuated. So for a while it was, it had to be your like primary language and then it could be any official language and then it could be any language, which is when a bunch of made-up languages popped up. Um, so yeah, there's, yeah. Excellent. Very, great example. The variety. And so the last category that I would identify is what I would call novelty songs. Um, for someone perhaps unfamiliar, you could think of something like Itsy Bitsy, Teeny Weeny, Yellow Polka Dot Bikini, right? Mm. Kind of silly lyrics. Um, it's, um, yeah, kind of kitschy. Um, you go for weird, you go for shock value, you go for sort of humor over substance, perhaps, um, for better and for worse. Kind of bizarreness. Um, usually with costumes and yeah usually like elaborate costumes some kind of ridiculous dance like something that's really yeah it's going again to catch attention in the final more than it is for maybe musical like prowess right and maybe sometimes you see this more often from smaller federations that are hoping to get into the final because of a kind of novelty song that has that kind of weird hook to it um i'm gonna go with you have to watch wolf of banana 2022 last year I think it's a really good example of the genre. Yeah. You've got yeah, guys who are dressed up as wolves. Giant yellow wolves. But they're kind of, the they look also wolves. kind of like bananas themselves. So they're like space wolves. They've yeah. got, it's two wolves. I love you said that so deadpan. Space well, no, wolves. they're space yeah, wolves. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Like, be Clearly. accurate, yeah. please. Yeah. Okay, right. Absolutely. I was way too. I think that's a good example, but I think you've missed some genres. I okay. Agree. Tell me. Yeah. Well, okay. So you've got. Um, your metal, like Finland's always oh, really yeah. yeah. and wow. hardcore yeah. metal. I did miss that. Um, Lordy would be the ones to check out, I think, for like the quintessential thing, but also, you know, other countries do it too, like Manskin, mm-hmm. one with like not quite as. You've got to have some metal. metal, metal but, like, there's metal and there's year. rock. Exactly. There's always yeah. someone who's bringing something a little bit harder, a little bit like more kind of metal rock. Um, and then you've got. You've You've normally got some country energy as well. There's like oh, normally no. oh, someone that. I'm I sorry for not and bringing I that know. up. Please. I look. I like it. You get like one, maybe two songs a year that have got a hard country twang. Normally, it's only one. Sometimes it's no one, but it's always a joy. As an American, I always find these to be the most kind of incongruous. Where I'm like, why are you singing like an American style country song? Yeah, and I think it's it because you do get some people that go for um, more of a trying to hit a more international tone yeah mm-hmm. so i think like that's the thing like and i think this also is partly in the ballads right of like going for a more international appeal yeah. a big ballad or something that's a more mainstream internationally appreciated genre like rock or country and so i would maybe put like the rock and country in like one bubble yeah and then the metal in another bubble because i think yeah those probably separate out because yeah. the metal's a little bit more i think that is kind of a bit of a country's identity if you're kind of like finland coming with like hardcore metal yeah. quite hardcore is probably a little bit of a stretch <laughs> yeah maybe not but finland turning up with like metal um artists quite like relatively regularly i think is more of a cultural thing than maybe other countries that go for like a country song or a rock song that's a little bit more globally appealing and then you've got to have an other bucket like Kate Miller Heidke's opera song from Australia. Yeah. That oh, yes, should have of won. Course. <laughs> of course, I have to mention it. What bucket does she fall in? 
She transcends everything. Well, I think she, she clearly I think does. I think it's a. I think that's a ballad. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think if you've got soaring vocals in that way, it's a ballad, whether or not it's technically opera. Yeah. Um, and I think I'd say the last thing about types of songs is sometimes you get a musician or an act who, uh, and this relates maybe a little bit to what we talk about we talked about last episode, um, people who think they're maybe a little bit better than the contest themselves, yes. right? So 2017, like an indie energy, totally. an obnoxious indie energy, yes. though, where it's like, well, I'm bringing pure music back to Eurovision, or I'm trying to do something that's you know more authentic say. yeah so i would say though that that happens across genres because we've got portugal's infamous yeah. thing of like bringing real music back mm-hmm. to eurovision which is a f- fucking beautiful song mm-hmm. but it's not particularly like indian cool yeah um but we do yeah like the uk the, maybe the uk entrance are a whole separate genre of just like trying to be like brit pop but doing it in just the worst possible way and being obnoxious about it <laughs> And so the last thing probably is why the hell are we all here? How did Eurovision get so queer? What is that all about? There's a long history, right? So 1961, Jean-Claude Pascal's song, he was from Luxembourg. Um, I'm not going to try to pronounce it because it's in um, French. And that's what you do, Louisa. You pronounce the French songs. I'm not going to do it. Um, but it's ambiguous, uh, the gender of the people in the song, and it was later revealed to be about two men. Um, so there is a history of there being um, some subversive kind of queer representation in the music itself. Yeah, because I guess that in some ways that's sometimes a genre of song of like there's normally there's normally nowadays some overtly gay yeah. songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the other thing, of course, is just how much of a spectacle the show is uh you know it's very camp it is right like yeah susan sontag could have written notes on camp all about eurovision right (laughs) um it's all about spectacle it's all about a classy academic reference for you um but yeah it's absurd costumes it's excess it's elaborate choreography there's performativity um so that's all part of part and parcel of the show itself it's a yeah, little bit extra, you know? It's a bit extra. I think, and also, it has historically been quite progressive in terms of who performs, yeah. mm-hmm. who wins, like Dana International winning as, like, the first trans winner who, and, like, really one of the first, well, I don't know, you can say, but a really significant, per- like, trans person yes. on, like, the world stage of, like, winning this international competition and being being very out and public and, and like, Iceland was the year before that so there was, it was like that was the moment of you know kind of queer queer visibility in the yes they've yeah. always I feel like it's it's been for a number of years now like a significant um celebrator of queer culture yeah. and queer artists uh, in a way that just simply hasn't actually been that accessible in a lot of other international stages and this can probably be its own whole I mean a separate episode about uh, queer representation in the show but the other thing I think about Dana's win was that was I think that was the first year that the audience was right up there and you just saw for the first time you were confronted with oh here's a bunch of queer people a lot of gay men are like rooting for this uh you know you saw it with Dana being there but just for all the songs yeah. that was kind of explicitly present on the telecast for the first time I think Conchita Verst was yeah, huge yeah, Chief versus for another the, massive moment for yeah. drag. Yeah, and yeah, this also intersects with what you were saying with how politics comes into play with Eurovision, um, because you know there can't be any overt political statements. I think queer people 
understand how to be can understand how to be political without being explicitly political right that, that was her um her statement was uh something along the lines of you know this night is dedicated to all those who believe in a future of peace and freedom you know who you are mm-hmm. right so she didn't say anything but it was all right there yeah mm-hmm. and i think and that's also an interesting thing with the politics is obviously not everywhere across the european broadcasting area is particularly queer friendly yeah um to put it mildly and that also comes into controversy about hosting and where where is well both where is kind of where do we want to endorse like Mm -hmm. if russia came very close to winning relatively recently and there was a lot of conversation there about like what what would that look like poland the same like would i think you know we have those discussions right it's like if poland won would we how would we make sure we do that and how would the ebu do that in a way that you've got a really like a majority of like a the core fan base are queer people how do you protect that whilst going into countries and letting kind of being hosted in places that are unfriendly to lgbt community and you still see it unfolding now right there's some conjecture that hungary pulled out because of Orban's family first policy, right? Um, and so they're no longer participating because of what uh, they perceive as too much queer representation, yeah. too much, uh, yeah, too much of that on stage. Yes, and it was a, a another level of controversy to Israel's win um, with Netta as well. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of, that's always quite forefront of the conversation around it. And I think, I find that really interesting because it is, su- it is something that's so, not owned by the queer community but it's a real it feels like a real home for yeah. the queer community and but we yeah it is it's you're celebrating songs coming from places that are anti-queen you also get some um quite political songs coming out of those countries sometimes like in reference to uh queerness within more repressive societies sometimes so Russia's song from when was it was very about um kind of was quite an anti-Putin yeah. song mm-hmm. and spoke a bit about it was 2021, like fem- yeah. yeah 2021 about was you know feminism women, and queer rights yes. and, and mm-hmm. like that those can come out of those those kind of societies they can kind of be used as a bit of an anti-establishment voice at yeah. times as well which is really yeah really important I also liked you saying that the queer community owns it right let's like that's the insidious gay agenda <laughs> we're, we're yeah. coming to grab we're just trying <laughs> to take if straight people have to get a license to watch your <laughs> hopefully yeah. that was really um educational for those listeners that wrote in wondering what the hell we're talking about and i think this is what's so cool right is it just on the surface looks like a song contest and this is maybe why i as an american never really got it never understood it feels like something over there and something that i can't really interact with and it's so much deeper ah. yeah there's so much there's so, you i mean as we've learned you can talk about it forever yeah and i think yeah obviously if you have any further questions let us know we're always welcoming questions we can we can try and answer them but that's yeah a quick overview i guess so yeah Thanks very much. Thanks very much. We will um, be back next time talking about the songs for this year. Here we and go. We're getting into so our close. Feelings about them. We're very excited. In the meantime, obviously, you can still find us on all of our socials and our email, which is three, the number three, threequizpod at gmail.com and on Twitter. Um, and obviously, you can also like, rate and subscribe us and leave comments. Be nice. We love Thanks you. Thank you. Okay, bye. See you next time miming along like and Duncan some... Lawrence and his little violin yeah
and, and some make it kind of a joke, like "ha ha ha, we're not actually." Performing. I don't mean Duncan Lawrence, do I? Duncan no, Lawrence you is don't. Arcade. <laughs> <laughs> what's oh, what's Violin Boy's name? Oh yeah, um, I'm like Floppy Head. Like floppy head yeah, and floppy his little head. guitar. Yeah, with his little hair. Okay. His little mop yeah. of head on top of his head. Oh my God, you know, just cut that entire reference 